Let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, the Bible. Please help us now as we look at this book of Acts and see uh, the apostles and uh, as they waited for the Holy Spirit to come. Help us to understand what this passage means, help us to see its significance, and help us through that to understand what it means to be part of your church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Bible, some numbers have special significance. It's not like they're lucky numbers or lotto numbers or something like that. What happens is something like this. You get a number and it's used in a particular context with a particular meaning. What happens then in that context, because it has a particular meaning, the meaning becomes associated with the number itself. And then once the number has that meaning, it's then used in other contexts with that meaning, to signify that meaning. Let me give you an, an example. Let me illustrate. The classic example is the number seven. The Bible says that God created everything in seven days. On the seventh day, he'd finished, and so he rested. Now, seven is the number of days it took God to finish creation in the Genesis account. And so the number seven itself comes to be associated with completion or perfection. And then later on, the number seven comes to be used with that same symbolism, that same meaning. So, for example, Jacob works seven years for each of his wives. Uh, Joshua is told to march seven times around Jericho. In many of the Jewish festivals, you have to offer seven sacrifices for seven days. In the days of Elijah, we saw the picture up there of the prophets of Baal. God said that he'd reserved 7,000 of himself who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. And on it goes, right through till you get to the book of Revelation with the seven spirits of God and the seven churches and the seven stars and the seven seals and so on. The number seven comes to signify completeness or, or, or perhaps perfection. The same kind of thing happens with other numbers. The number 40 is significant in the Bible. The number 666. Or there's the number 12. The significance of the number 12 in the Bible goes back to the man Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, the man whose name became, was changed to Israel. Israel had 12 sons, and they were the beginning, the, the patriarchs, the starters of the 12 tribes of Israel, you know, the nation of Israel. And so the number 12 in that context, it, it is the full number of the patriarchs of God's people, the complete number of the people of God. And what happens then? That association is carried forward in the Bible. So, for example, you get uh, situations like what happens in Judges chapter 21. In Judges 21, which is an awful story, I don't, uh, I'm not going to read it for you now, but what happens is that out of some terrible circumstances, the tribe of Benjamin is nearly wiped out. It's very interesting to see the reaction of the Israelites because they are incredibly distressed. They mourn and they weep about it because they say there is now a gap in God's people. They're not complete anymore. There aren't 12 of them anymore. On your outline there, I've just got uh, one verse from Judges 21. It says there, the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a gap in the tribes of Israel. Do you see 12 is the complete number of the patriarchs and the tribes? If you have less than 12, there's a gap. They're not complete. And the symbolism is picked up again in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 7, the people of Israel in heaven are described. And they're symbolised 
as being 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, the famous 144,000. The symbolism is the same. What it's saying is God has his complete number of people in heaven, his complete number of, of Jews in heaven. And so when Jesus decides to choose 12 apostles, what he's doing is very significant. He's actually trying to say something. He's making a statement. He's saying, I, Jesus, and the new Jacob, the new Israel, and these 12 apostles are like my 12 sons. They are the patriarchs, the founders, the beginning of a renewed people of God. Jesus deliberately chose 12 apostles. And he said to them stuff which indicated what he meant. He said, for example, to them, you will sit on 12 thrones in my kingdom, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Or later on, you've got the book of Revelation again. In Revelation chapter 21, God's people are pictured as a city. On the 12 gates, you've got the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then on the 12 foundations of the wall, you've got the names of the 12 apostles of Jesus. The point is the same. Jesus' 12 apostles make up the complete foundation of a renewed people, the New Testament people of God. You see the point? It is significant that there are 12 apostles. They're like the 12 sons of Jacob. They're the complete foundation, the, 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 the full number of patriarchs of a renewed people of God. In Acts chapter 1... We've already been talking about these apostles. From chapter 1 and verse 2, we saw that Jesus chose them and taught them. Verse 3, we saw that Jesus appeared to them after he died on the cross. He gave many convincing proofs that he was alive again. For 40 days, he taught them about God's kingdom. And then Jesus gave them their mission. He said, you are to be my witnesses. You have to testify that I am the risen king whom you have seen. But he said, you're not going to do it alone. He said, God is going to come in the person of the Holy Spirit. Like he came to Israel in their tabernacle and their temple. He says, God is going to come and be with you and help you in your task. For now, Jesus says to the disciples, what you've got to do is wait. Wait for God to send the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus ascends into heaven. And then in the passage that we're looking at in verse 12, the apostles do as they were told. They return to Jerusalem and they wait and pray for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 and verse 12. Acts 1 and verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter... John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Well, they're there doing what they're told, waiting and praying, but if you count through that list of apostles, there's a problem. Because there aren't 12 anymore. One is missing. It's like what happened to Israel in the book of Judges. There's a gap. And so in verse 15, the apostle Peter stands up and, and he, he points out the problem. He says, Judas was one of our number. He was one of the 12. Jesus gave him a share in the apostolic ministry. Jesus gave him a share 
as one of the 12. Judas was an important piece in the puzzle, and now he's missing. And so the number is incomplete. Of course, it's not out of God's control. It's all to fulfill scripture. But the fact is, there's a gap here. And so verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared, had a share in this ministry. Uh, Then at this point, Luke fills in a bit of uh, detail for us, a few of the gory details about what happened to Judas, verse 18. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, and there he fell headlong, his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Picturesque, isn't it? Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Akeldama. That means field of blood. Well, Luke's had his little aside. Now Peter continues. He points to, points to two, two scriptures that he's talking about that have been fulfilled, and they're both from the Psalms. And both of them talk about the enemies of the Messiah, of God's anointed king. The first one there is in verse 20 is from Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, the Messiah prays about his enemy and he says, I don't want anyone living in my enemy's place. There in verse 20. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And of course, that's exactly what we've just been told has happened to Judas. His body is in the field of blood. No one is living there. Judas got what was coming to him. He got what his wickedness deserved. He betrayed and opposed the Messiah, and he ended up with no one dwelling in his place. But there's one more scripture, one more scripture that Peter wants to point out, this time from Psalm 109. And there, what the Messiah does, he prays that someone will replace his enemy. Take his place of leadership. The next part of verse 20. And may another take his place of leadership. That's what the Messiah prayed for. And so Peter says, that's what we need to do. We need to give someone else Judas' place in the 12. But it can't be just anyone. Remember, the role of the apostles is to be witnesses of what happened to Jesus. And of course, you can't be a witness unless you were there, unless you saw what went on. And so, Peter says, we need to find someone who's been with us all along, who who saw Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry, who heard Jesus teach, someone who saw Jesus do miracles, someone who saw Jesus die, someone who saw Jesus alive again. There in verse 21. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. The believers come up with two names, two blokes who fit the job description. But the thing is, the believers don't want to be the ones who ultimately choose Jesus' apostle. I mean, this is meant to be Jesus' apostle. He's the one who's chosen all his apostles, we saw back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 2. And so the believers, what they do, they pray to Jesus. This is actually something extremely rare in the New Testament, that people pray to Jesus and not to God the Father. They pray to Jesus, 
and they ask him to choose which of the two should be the twelfth apostle. And then they cast lots, they toss a coin, so to speak. The lot falls to Matthias, that is, Jesus chooses Matthias, and so the believers accept him as the twelfth apostle. Verse 23. So they proposed two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. And so once again, there are twelve. The number is complete. You see what's happening in this passage? is actually pretty simple, isn't it? The apostles are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. As they wait, they realise their number is incomplete. They've only got 11. Judas' betrayal and suicide have left them with only 11. And so they add Matthias to the 11 to complete the number of apostles. It comes back to the significance of this number 12, doesn't it? Symbolising the complete number of God's people. Matthias is added to make up that 12 so that you've got the full foundation. Pretty simple passage. The question is, what on earth is it doing here? Why would you have this passage? Why is there sitting waiting for the Holy Spirit to the disciples go, oh, there are only 11 of us and we really need to have 12 of us? It's not the first thing that had jumped to my mind. Is it the first thing that had jumped to your mind if you'd just seen Jesus raised up to heaven and, and you're told to wait for the, uh, for the Holy Spirit? Why do they feel, think they need to have the complete number? Well, the reason Peter gives is, is uh, that's what the Messiah prays for in Psalm 109, and in a sense, that, that's all we need to know. But I've got a theory that there's something else going on here. It's just my theory. Don't, uh, don't go too far with this, but let me share it with you. Remember, we're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. God is going to come and dwell with this renewed New Testament people. If you think back to the Old Testament, where is it that God comes and dwells? He comes to dwell in the tabernacle. He comes to dwell in the temple. Well, here in the New Testament, he's not coming to a building anymore. He's going to come to his people. But that means that the people of God are in the same position as the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament. And the thing is this. In the Old Testament, God only came to the tabernacle and the temple after they were finished after they were completed. Did you see it in our first reading? After Moses finished the tabernacle, then the glory of the Lord came. Same in the time of Solomon when he built the temple. When he finished the temple, then God came and dwelled with his people. Well, now here in Acts chapter 1, the disciples have been told, God is going to come and dwell with you. The Holy Spirit is coming into the new temple, the, the people of God. But as they're sitting there, they realise, well, hang on, there's... There's a block missing out of the foundation. We're not complete. There are only 11. There's a gap. And so that's why I think they need to replace Judas. They need to complete the foundations of the new temple, so to speak. And now that that's happened, now that we've got Matthias, we're ready for God to come and dwell with his people in his temple. Now we're ready for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now we're ready for Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit. See how it fits in? If that is true, I reckon that gives a fascinating perspective on how these first Christians viewed themselves. First of all, they understood that they were God's renewed people. 
the new Israel. All of God's promises to Israel in the Old Testament, they've now been focused on the new Israel, the Lord Jesus, and on his 12 sons, his 12 apostles. The church sees themselves, the Jewish church here, as the new Israel, God's new people. And they are expecting, in the person of the Holy Spirit, God himself to be dwelling with them. God himself to be in them and among them, just as he was in the temple, the tabernacle. They see themselves as God's new people with God in them. Pretty amazing thing to think, don't you reckon? I reckon this is a fascinating passage and it leads us beautifully into Acts chapter 2 and then it'll make sense of all sorts of things in chapters 3, 4, 5. But it's worth pausing for a while here because there are all kinds of other interesting implications of this passage as well. Let me just uh, run you through about three interesting implications, although they're slightly side points. Now, first of all, you've got the man Judas. I don't know if you've heard, but recently there's been a bit of controversy about Judas in the papers. Warren pointed it out to me. I don't get to read the papers. and not very up-to-date with things, but Warren's graciously sent me a couple of articles uh, from the papers. Apparently, a couple of months ago, an early document was released dates from about the 2nd or 3rd century AD, and it's called the Gospel of Judas. Other people read about this, or am I the only ignorant person? Yeah, other people, okay, well, you'll be interested then. Let me quote from an article in uh, April's, uh, April the 7th, I think it was, in the Sydney Morning Herald. A 1,700-year-old papyrus manuscript suggests history has misjudged the greatest villain of Christianity. The only known surviving copy of the lost Gospel of Judas portrays the treacherous disciple as a loyal deputy acting at the behest of his leader. In fact, Judas sold Jesus out as an act of obedience, not treachery, thereby fulfilling his theological destiny. Or as an article in The Australian recently puts it, far from betraying Jesus, Judas Iscariot sacrificed himself for his master. The idea idea is because it was in fulfilment of scripture, therefore either Judas was some kind of a puppet doing what God told him to do, or else he was actually cooperating with God and doing a good thing by betraying Jesus. It's logical. God wanted it to happen. Therefore, Judas must have been either cooperating or just um, like a puppet. Well, it might make logical sense to some people, but in this passage in Acts, we get a much more deeper and more subtle relationship between God's sovereignty and Judas' actions. Yes, God was sovereign over Judas. Judas fulfilled scripture. It wasn't out of God's control when Judas betrayed Jesus. It was part of God's plan. But that does not mean that Judas was doing a good thing. Nor does it mean that Judas was some kind of a puppet forced to act against his will. Judas did a terrible thing. He was one of the twelve. Jesus had chosen him to be part of the foundation of God's new people. Jesus had chosen him to be part of the new temple where God would come to dwell. uh, Judas was one of Jesus' closest friends. And then out of sheer wickedness, to quote Luke here, Judas betrayed his master and his friend. This passage shows us the truth. What Judas did was part of God's plan, but still he is really a villain, not a puppet, not a willing sacrificer, but a betrayer of his master and friend, and he got what he deserved. Secondly, notice 
in this passage what it takes to be an apostle. Now, this week I was given a book called The Apostolic Revelation, published by a um, Queensland pastor in 2002. The book argues that for a church to be able to call itself apostolic, it needs to have apostles, that is, living modern-day apostles. It says, and I quote, the office of apostles has a permanent place in the life of the church of every age. It says, and I quote, God is about to release into the earth a powerful increase of the apostolic anointings and restore the apostolic nature of the church itself. And then the author, a Brisbane pastor, goes on to say that in February 1997, Jesus appeared to him and appointed him as an apostle. It's a bit like that Robert Duval movie that some of you may have seen called The Apostle. After he uh, leaves his wife and bashes her boyfriend on the head, he then um, uh, anoints himself an apostle. Now, in one sense, this is no big deal. People can call themselves whatever they want. Uh, and the word apostle just means someone who has been sent. There's a sense in which we've all been sent by Jesus. We're all apostles. But that's not quite what these modern apostles are claiming. What they're saying is, we should have the same sort of authority in the church that the 12 apostles had. In other words, you should do what we say. You should think about us as you think about the Bible. Well, this passage in Acts is very clear. We see it in the choice of Matthias. The 12 apostles had a unique place in the life of the church. They were personal eyewitnesses of Jesus. You can't have ever any ordinary person claiming to be an apostle in any sense like these apostles because they were eyewitnesses. And their number, the number 12, was significant. They made up the complete foundation of the renewed people of God, the new Israel. Now, of course, later on in the book of Acts, we're going to see one, one addition to this completion, so to speak. God's renewed Israel are going to be joined by Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 and, for, and following, and the Gentiles are going to have a couple of apostles of their own. Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are called apostles, not in the renewed Israel, but in this Gentile addition to the renewed Israel. But more of that when we get to it. The point is, can you see, these 12 apostles are unique. You can't be an apostle today. Nobody can tell you they're an apostle. Nobody can tell you that you have to do what they say. If you want to be an apostolic church, you've got to stick with the original apostles. You've got to stick with the true apostles and what they say in the New Testament. That's how we be apostolic. We stick with the Bible. A third implication. This passage reminds us of the foundations of our faith. Christianity is built on the eyewitness testimony about the death and resurrection of Jesus, the eyewitness testimony of these apostles. That is what we are called to believe, to have faith in as Christians. When we say a Christian has faith, that's what we're talking about. They believe the eyewitness testimony of the apostles about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Nowadays when people talk about faith, that's not what they mean, is it? They think it's, uh, it's something separate from history and evidence and reason. They think you have to switch off your brain and take some kind of a leap of faith. That's not New Testament faith. Faith in the New Testament is just, it comes down to whether or not you believe the testimony about Jesus, the spirit-inspired apostolic eyewitness testimony. There's nothing magic about it, nothing mysterious about it, nothing anti-reason about it. You just need to weigh up whether what they say is trustworthy or not, the same as you have to do when you're thinking about whether you believe anyone on any subject. You've got to ask yourself, 
can I believe these blokes? If you can, well, then you have New Testament faith. All kinds of fascinating implications of this passage. Let me bring you back to the main point, though. Here in the Twelve Apostles, we've got the complete foundation of the renewed people of God, and they are ready for God himself to come and dwell with them. I hope you realise that that is the church that you are a part of. Look around and we're a bit of a motley crew in some ways, aren't we? And we do kind of rub each other the wrong way and it can feel like it's all very ordinary and a bit empty. But that's not the truth. The truth is, through Jesus, we are God's people built on the foundation of the apostles. Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone and God is here in us by his spirit. It is an extraordinary privilege to be a part of the church. Those people around you are the most extraordinary people in the world. They have God living in them. They are built on this foundation of the Twelve Apostles. They have Christ Jesus himself as their cornerstone. They are God's people. Look after them, won't you? Realise the privilege of being part of them, won't you? Love them. Acknowledge that God is here. Keep trusting in Jesus. And thank him for this privilege. Why don't we do that now? Let's thank God. Our Father, we thank and praise you for your church. We thank and praise you that it is built on this, these 12 apostles and on Christ Jesus himself. And we thank you that you have come to dwell with us by your Holy Spirit. Our Father, please help us to understand the extraordinary privilege of being your people. Help us never to take for granted the gift of your Holy Spirit. Help us to love your church, to love you, and to live for you. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.